All right, you may be seated. Gunshots, everything's okay. It's not as bad as it looks. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this chance to be together with our church. Uh, we're grateful to be able to have some of us here. We're grateful to have the technology together, uh, folks of ours on Zoom as well, to help to be safe here in our community, um, but also to, to have a way to worship together. I pray that you guide us through not only this evening, but this year. I'm grateful for the chance to explore your word with your people, and I pray that you would guide us through this time in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as I mentioned, we're going through the book of Galatians, and, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about why, uh, even in this, uh, in this sermon, I want to get across basically three things this evening. I want to tell you a little bit about the book of Galatians and why Paul wrote it. Um, I want to, in doing that, tell you uh, why we're focusing on it this year, and I want to show you kind of the relation between the two, some of the themes that we're going to hit during the year that are also uh, mentioned even here in this introduction. So the, the introduction is short, but there's actually a lot because I'm trying to kind of set the table of what you could expect uh, to experience for the year. So let's, uh, let's jump in. Basically, uh, the book of Galatians, and, and we'll discuss more about this, like the historical background and such in the coming weeks. I think Nick and John are going to contribute to that as well. But um, I want to tell you a few of these critical reasons that we are choosing this book this year and a couple of those that stand out are first, or actually there's, there's a few. First, the fact that as we read this introductory section that Danielle has read for us, it, as you start to explore into it a little bit, there are a couple of things that you find. And the first is this is one of the most defensive letters Paul writes. He actually begins the letter with a defense of his apostleship. And that's, that's different. That's not typical. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who were with me. And as you continue to read the book of, uh, the book of Galatians, you'll learn that Paul's legitimacy as an apostle um, of Jesus was being challenged, that people were, were suggesting that he wasn't a true apostle, um, that he wasn't one of the 12, and they were saying that because they wanted to undermine his message and what he was saying to Gentiles. And so Gentiles simply are people who are not of, of Jewish descent, and he was bringing the gospel to them and wasn't requiring of them what these folks wanted him to, and so they went after his credibility. And so he says to them, look, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, and we know from other writings of his that he is anchoring that in his actually having experienced the risen Christ on the Damascus road. And he throws in there that there's a group of believers who are with him. And this probably included people like Barnabas, who would have known that the church as a whole had asserted that Paul was indeed somebody that they accepted. So Paul here is defending himself and his fidelity to the gospel. And to be honest with you, entirely honest with you, throughout this year here at Mission, we as leaders, we have not, and I need to say, we have not at all experienced what Paul experienced. None of you have come up and said, I don't think you're a Christian or a pastor or anything like that to any of us. But this year has brought up a lot more questions about the, the validity of the, maybe the message that we have taught even here at our church. 
And something that we've noticed, and I've talked uh, when I gathered a leader, um, a, a group of pastors together from all over the city, something that came up here with 30 or so pastors from here in Tucson is they all said that, that it had landed with them most this year that so many of the people of our churches anchor themselves more in other teachers than in their own pastors. And the way that usually works is that there's a, a something that's taught that's hard, it's difficult, and you go and you Google it and you're like, who, you know, is this what people, everybody says? And inevitably, and if you do this much, you'll know this is how it works. You can find anybody, any pastor, like you'll find a pastor saying everything out there, right? You will. Like any viewpoint you want to find, you can go and find a pastor saying it or a Christian leader or a scholar. And so that, that's complicated for you, but it's also complicated for us as leaders because it it begins to diminish our sense of, so are you listening to us? We've been called. We really feel a deep responsibility. If you're members of our church, like we've said, we're going we're gonna to shepherd your souls. But then when you want to hear something else and you run and you find any, you know, all these other people saying other things, it's difficult. And so there's a sense in which I, and I think all of us kind of relate a little bit to that sense of needing to defend the position of God has called us to this. Really? And so that's part of why this book of Galatians is appealing. It it seems to fit the cultural moment a little bit in that there is this sense of who does, who does like have responsibility for who? And who is God called and how does it, what does it look like to be a, a church under the leadership of somebody that God's called? That's uncomfortable for me to talk about, by the way. I'm not big on being an authoritarian, and many of you probably know that. I'm, I'm not the type that just comes in as like, do this, but it, it's important. Secondly, Paul addresses the churches in Galatia, and this seems like a small point at first, uh, but it does exhibit this, this interesting little detail that there were connected churches in this city of Galatia, and something that we did last year that, I, and by the way, when I wrote like I wrote a year-end email, and, and many of you may have seen it. I, I forgot that we, like, joined a body of churches this year. I almost forgot about our Louisiana trip, and I'll tell you why. We did a lot last year. Like, as a church, as I was writing that out, I was, like, I was blown away just remembering. I couldn't, I mean, can you believe that we did that mural not even a year ago? That was this year. Like, that doesn't seem like this year to me. I mean, there was so much... That seemed like this fun community thing, and there was so much more we had to do. But as, as I was thinking through the year, I totally forgot. We joined and started participating in this body of churches, and we did that because we believed that what I'm saying to you all about being kind of potentially viewing yourself as under pastors and leaders and elders, I mean, we, we were thinking, truthfully, we can't ask this of our people if we are unwilling to do this as a church if we're unwilling to kind of sit under leadership as well. And so we, we believed in that and we, we made moves to actually do that. And part of what we want to do this year is then begin to ask the question, what unique things are there about our church? Why are we a separate church in Tucson? There's so many churches. Why don't we merge with all of them? We did it once, right? But, but why are we a different church? And then how are we connected? What's our, what's our relationship Two other churches. And Andrew, if you want to put up this little outpost image, I want to explain this little idea to you. 
This is something we've been talking about, and I honestly gleaned this off of a retired pastor from Denver, but this is something we've, we've been kind of toying with this idea of how do we position our church, and we're going to talk about this more throughout the year. And what this, this circle, the big circle represents the entire church, the body of Christ. And so there are churches that really like what they try to do is they try to be right in the center of that. And they want to gather Christians and encourage them. They're often highly, highly, you know, into like deep discipleship with Christians and trying to, you know, produce as mature believers as possible. And every church cares about that and must. But the, the way that this guy had explained this really hit me. And he said, we don't want to be just in the center, mainly dealing with established Christians. We want to be on the edge, like an outpost, where you are interacting with those who are outside of the church, and you're kind of recommending Christianity. You're opening the door. You're being accessible. Um, and also, you're available to those inside of the church who are struggling, who maybe have doubts and who are maybe like inching away from the center of Christianity. And you want to be there for them, kind of with this open door to them as well. And so that's something that we as elders have been discussing, and we want to really work out that idea of what could it look like to be an outpost type of church that is absolutely connected to the the broader church. We have no desire to go and do a new thing, a new Christianity. But then again, we want to be engaging with people who are on on the verge of leaving or entering, and we want to be there for them, and we want to strategize um, intentionally to walk with these people. So we want to to figure out how to do that and how to do it well. And this idea that, that we see in the book of Galatians, that there are multiple churches there, there must have been, to some degree, these churches were connected. Paul wrote to all of them, but they were somehow distinct, or if they would have all just met together. Maybe it's practical, Maybe they, they had some different types of groups. I don't know in their situation. But when you look around Tucson, I've had to ask this question back when I planted a church, why plant another one? And the reason that I did, and that some of you became a part of it, and some of you are still here in this new expression of mission that's a merger of two churches with a similar heart, is that we said we need a different type of church. There are people that the churches that exist aren't engaging with. We need to engage with them. I believe something of that nature was happening in Galatia as well. So Paul had, was called to lead this people of this city. He was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He had a specific mission that was different than the other apostles in which he reached out to the Gentiles. And so we, we have some sense of that too, specific mission, specific call. And we want to share that throughout this year. Thirdly, uh, Paul breaks into something of a doxology here, and Mike just just shared a doxology with us in song. And what a doxology kind of simply is, is a, a statement of praise. It's a kind of a glory saying, if you will. And here Paul succinctly in his doxology states the gospel of the Christian faith, really. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And this greeting, and therefore the letter, is absolutely rooted in the gospel. And that's a key thing we want to talk about this year, what it means to be rooted in the gospel. But there's something that you'll notice as you read through the book of Galatians. I'd recommend you all read just the whole book 
in, you know, a whole chunk several times this year, by the way. And what you'll notice is it isn't merely about the gospel. Everything in it will be anchored in the gospel, but it isn't merely about the gospel. And a couple weeks ago, I talked about how mere Christianity is key. I talked about C.S. Lewis's book. And so it, it is true that there is a simple Christianity. There's, there's a faith, and that is what binds us together. But kind of in the spirit of Martin Luther, I would want to say that we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that we have is never alone. It always leads to a changed life, to following Jesus. It teaches you to love God more. It teaches you to love others. And we want to work on this here at Mission throughout this year. We want to, we want to be distinct in that we anchor everything in the gospel, but we actually want to reject the idea that we would preach only the bare bones of the gospel to those under our voice. And that you know, preaching of the bare bones can sometimes be a strategy to steer clear of touchy subjects. And, you know, why not? Why not do that? Or why go beyond the bare bones? And I would say this, A, you have to. It's utterly impossible not to go beyond the bare bones because the gospel always has implications for life. There's no believing the gospel without asking, how then shall we live? And in this letter, Paul talks about one of the most controversial topics he possibly could have talked about in Galatia, and that was circumcision. And to us, that doesn't feel so controversial. To them, it was absolutely controversial. And the bare bones of the gospel don't address it. To say, hey, Jesus died for my sins does not clarify whether or not you or your children or your family members should be circumcised. It doesn't speak to it. But the principles of the gospel, the implications of the gospel, what it means, have great bearing on the question of circumcision and on so many other issues. And Paul will go on to say that if you don't live out of the gospel, you need to examine your claims to believe it, in so many words. And this gospel, as he broke down in his doxology, you know, it, it says a lot. I want to just show you a couple ways a couple things that it says. I'll read it again. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Just look for a second at a few implications. Grace and peace. Peace, this idea of shalom, of reconciliation with God, has a huge bearing on what our lives are to be about. Grace, the idea that unmerited favor is what saves us, has huge implications. If, it's, if you're saved only by unmerited favor, by grace, then nothing else can save you. That has huge implications. When he says, from God who is our Father and Christ who is our Lord, those are some strong words if you really consider them. Consider this, just two ideas that we I think really touched on this past year, individualism, nationalism. Explore them under these two ideas. If God is the father of his people, he is our father. That's how this text phrases it, phrases it, phrases it. He's not my father, your father. 
In fact, when I said earlier, Jesus died for my sins, the Bible never really says it that way. It's always our sins. He died for the sins of his bride, which shows up in the book of Revelations. One bride comprised of all of the people of God. There is one family, one God and one father. He is our father. And this this is why churches throughout history have asserted that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're united. It's not just a me and Jesus exchange. It's Jesus and his church. Those who have already been brought in and those who he will draw to himself. And then it says Jesus is the only king or Lord of his people. And that's an incredible statement too. That means that for God's people, the kingdom of God and Jesus as king is the chief allegiance that unites them. And it overshadows all others. And this is a very important distinction to make. So for Americans, for for example, it should not be that our Christianity is shaped by our Americanism or interpreted through our being Americans. Our Americanism should be challenged and shaped and interpreted through being Christians. So God is our Father. Jesus is our Lord. Those have incredible implications. And Jesus, our Lord, it said, gave himself or died for us to deliver us from the present evil age. And this is an incredible statement as well. We believe that he rose from the dead in real time and space to signal that we would be saved from this present time and space. And you have to understand in the ancient Jewish world and to the people whom Paul discussed, there were two ages that they expected, the present evil age and an age of restoration in which God would reestablish his kingdom. There were just two. And to be in the present evil age meant that you were longing and hoping for the new and glorious age. And all of this, Paul says, is according to the will of our God that it was his purpose and plan all along. That's even right there in this doxology, according to the will of our God and Father. He doesn't leave any room for us to take away the sovereignty of God, even though the age that we are in is evil. We are in it, but God's people have a sovereign and strong and and never-shaking hope in the midst of it. It's everything is happening according to, to the will of God. And that has huge implications. I mean, think about Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount speaking about anxiety and worry. And he says to us that we should look at creatures like birds who believe in the sovereignty of God. And why do they do that? How do they? Well, because they don't worry about what they're going to eat tomorrow or what they're going to wear tomorrow. Neither do the flowers, right? They wake up every morning and assume that everything that they need will be provided for them. And Jesus is saying, look, we can live the same way. And how do you do that? The only way you can do that is to believe that God actually has a plan and is actually in control. And this God, Paul says, who is in control is the one to whom there, like we owe our, our praise and to whom will be glory forever and ever. And that's the culmination, that's the purpose of the gospel, of the good news of Christianity, the purpose of it. Why did God bother? Why did he create us? Why did he create a plan of salvation? One reason for the glory 
of God. And all other motives water down the gospel and make them about us. Ask yourself as we enter into this year, what is my motive for asserting my Christian faith when I do? Or shying away from telling anyone I believe it when I don't? I saw a post recently, and because I was preparing for this sermon, I had a different question in mind. And and the post said something essentially to the effect of it said, America is a Christian nation, and I'm tired of people telling me what to do, and nobody will tell me what to do anymore. And I asked the question of the post. In my head, I said, what's the motive of the post? To whose glory is the post? It can sound very... Christian or gospel saturated, but when you listen to it, it's like, whose rights are the post about? God's? It didn't feel like it. But on the flip side of that, some of us believe these words we say about Jesus, but we hide the light. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount addressed this, right? He, he talked about you don't hide something under, you know, you don't light a lamp and hide it under a bushel and I don't even know what a bushel is, if I'm being totally honest with you. I didn't word study that one. I always think of a bush, but it can't be, so I always figure it's like a basket. But but I think a modern way of saying it would be this, and it would sound very strange, right? So here's the modern way of saying it. Imagine you walked up to to a house with some friends. It's pitch black. It's the middle of the night. And they have never been to your house, and you're inviting them in. And you walk in, you turn on the light, and you take a dark blackout cloth and then immediately cover over the lamp and tell them, uh, you know, head on back to the backyard. That would be a weird thing to do, right? Why? Because the light that you just turned on is what you need to see to navigate this house and get through it. And they're going to trip and they're going to bump on things. Nobody in their right mind would flip on a light, acknowledging that the light existed and was good and helpful, and then immediately cover up the light, right? That is the weird thing that Christians do when they believe that they know the truth of how one can be reconciled to God and eternally peaceful and secure, and then don't tell anybody that is true. It is just as nonsensical as that. We've been given the way to navigate without stumbling and safely. We are the light. We hold the news, the gospel, the truth, we know it, we see it, but we're afraid and it doesn't make sense. Will people reject it and therefore reject you? Sure, they will. But look, if you believe it will save them, won't you offer it? People will say, ah, this is that kind of intolerant Christian stuff that they do and they go out and evangelize and tell people their faith and and I want to I just examine that for a second. Why, why would that be? If you believe it's true, it's not intolerant to share that you believe it is true and that you place your hope in that. It would be intolerant to put a gun to somebody's head and force that. That would be a terrible thing to do. Don't do that. Or don't threaten them in any way, shape, or form. Don't take any liberties away. Don't do anything like that. But to share it? In fact, it'd be the only way to love. Let's say some of us, uh, somebody here, let's go with Danielle, you know, she, because this might actually be true of Danielle. She's knowledgeable in the ways of science, right? And 
Um, she finds out, she gets a phone call, the verified absolute way to be, to be cured of acute COVID-19, if you're on death's door. She, she gets that phone call, she's told, here is how you cure it. And a friend of hers gets it and has to go into the hospital and they, they don't know what to do. She is dying, but Danielle knows. She knows the answer. Now, maybe this person doesn't believe in medical cures. Maybe they don't believe in COVID. But you know they have it and you know exactly what to do, is it intolerant to offer to them the way that you know would save their life? No. Love, in fact, demands it. They can always refuse, but no honest person can say that someone offering what they believe to be a cure to that which would kill their their immortal soul is intolerant just for sharing it. I always think of the Seinfeld episode, and I think of a lot of them. So, but but I always think of the one where Elaine finds out her boyfriend Putty is a Christian, and I know I've talked about it here before. And she asks him, she says, "Do you think I'm going to hell?" Right? And he says, "Yep." And she says, "So why don't you try to save me?" And I forget exactly what he said, but something like, "Well, I was thinking about getting around to it." And you know. Even in the show, you get this idea that even in this fictional account, she doesn't believe the message, but what is offensive to her is that he, doesn't, that he believes it and doesn't care enough to attempt to tell her, right? That's the relational problem, is you, don't, you think I'm going to hell, and you aren't even going to tell me you're going to get around to it? What kind of boyfriend is that, right? I mean, that's the irony that Seinfeld picked up on. And I think, you know, even the most honest and, and frustrated atheist I know would at least wish their Christian friend cared enough to talk to them honestly about their beliefs. Not to put pressure on them, not to get them to conform, but just to talk honestly about their, their, their hopes, their concerns with them. And finally, on top of that, if the main reason for this entire plan of God is that God will be praised and glorified, what does it say of our hearts, of my heart, if I want to hide my relationship with God, how can I say that I love him if I'm really quite embarrassed to tell anybody that I talk to him every day? Finally, verses 6 and 7, Paul says, I am astonished. Now, this is surprising. Of all of Paul's letters, he never cuts to the chase this fast. This is the shortest introduction, and it's really quite brief, and you could tell he is quite frustrated. He says, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And look, I I realize we as, and I'm speaking now as an elder, as a leader of this church, we have some work to do this year because Paul here is talking about what are known as the Judaizers, okay? This is, the, this is kind of what they called this group. And they would often follow him to cities where the gospel was being shared with Gentiles, with non-Jewish people. And they would go to the people that Paul had shared with, and they would tell them that they actually needed to be circumcised um, and that they needed to follow certain Jewish customs and celebrate certain festivals Um, to truly be a part of God's people. They would say, what Paul told you is not enough. You need to do more. You need to be circumcised. You need to do these festivals and these customs. And they're believing it. And Paul is 
shocked and astonished that they are accepting this. And he, this is not a happy letter. Um, he's frustrated at the people who are trying to tell them they need to do this and at they who are believing that they need to do this. And what he's, what he's shocked about is that they were so easily swayed. And how, how does this situation happen? Well, consider how it may have happened to them. We'll study more into it, but let's just scrape the surface and consider how it happened. You need to know um, that to not let this happen to you, you have to be deeply saturated in the gospel. And when I say gospel, I'm saying as contained in the entire Bible, how the whole Bible tells this story of the good news of Jesus. And if you aren't, you can easily slip into one of these types of errors. Now look at the situation here. These people who, who, that followed Paul and they, they came into the city after him, they seemed very religious and they used the same religious text. Okay? This is an important thing to note. They came in with Bible verses because they had verses that showed that you're supposed to follow these ceremonies and you're supposed to get circumcised. They used the Bible, and they were very religious people. These weren't irreligious people. These weren't people who were trying to get them away from God. They were telling them they needed to be closer to God than they were by doing more, and they used the Bible to prove it. And the Galatians didn't know what to do or what to say. Would you know what to do? Why don't we meet in a temple anymore? Why do we follow some laws that you find in Leviticus and some we don't? Why don't we preach that we need to be circumcised? If you don't know, you are susceptible to this same sort of stuff. And nobody's following us around trying to talk you into that, so it's not happening. But they're following us around talking about other things. We as leaders realize we need to teach some things better. One is that God has revealed his nature and his plan in a progressive way. Nature, and you need to know the whole Bible to really get it. He unveiled things to people in, in ways that they could understand at the, you know, at the place that they were in history, but he also drew it out and, and expanded upon all these lessons. And as you get to know the Bible as a coherent whole, you start to see the building blocks. And, what, and this is based on this, and this is based on this. The law is based on the character of God. The character of God was shown to us in his creation and his deliverance out of Egypt, the way that he saves, the way that he creates. The law tells us more about his character and how we ought to please him, what it takes to be atoned for and like brought back into peace with him after we have made mistakes and sinned, whether it was on purpose or on accident. And then the law prescribes exactly how those types of things should look to show you the severity of your sin. And then the law also shows you how to get along with others in civil situations and how to just please God in general, right? And then Jesus, when he enters in, is not wiping that away. He's fulfilling it. He's finishing it. It doesn't mean you don't please God, but it means the ways that you used to sacrifice to please God are complete in him. But you still want to know about those ways, but you're not going to practice the sacrifice anymore. Every Christian should be able to articulate something of that fashion to anybody who asks. That's basic Christianity. And you need to know how it, how it all is built on the Old Testament or else you're not going to be able to anchor it in anything. 
We need to understand that. We need to know how to read the Bible. The Bible is a collection of books that were canonized. And that is to say, they were found to be consistent with one another, historically consistent, and inspired by God. And there, there are other like texts out there. This is a worldwide historical thing to do to canonize texts, okay? It's not just a Bible thing. But they were kept together by God's people in a belief that God was continually speaking to them through these books. And we believe that as Christians. But though they were inspired, they were written in specific, in specific languages and contexts to specific people by, spe- by specific people. And you can't just grab a verse and make it mean whatever you want. You have to ask a lot more questions. You have to ask, who said this? When did they say this? What do these words really mean? What were they telling their audience? Does this apply at all to me or to us? And if so, how? The name of this type of thing, it's grammatical historical interpretation, which means you need to look at what the words mean, the grammar and the sentence structure. You need to understand what what was being said. It's just how to study old documents. And then historical is where was it said in history? And what do we learn about what was said based on who it was said to and, and when? And beyond that, the next piece of the historical question is where does it fit in God's story of redemption? And that's so important because you can read about an Old Testament sacrifice, you can read about circumcision, and if you read it in isolation and you don't think, where is this in the story? How does this fit? What was God teaching us through that? Is he still using that to teach us now? And if you don't know the answer to that question, you won't be able to understand the text. This is very important, and this is how Paul anchors his teaching on circumcision, circumcision in Galatians. Were God's people supposed to be circumcised? Yes, they were. Are they now? And Paul's answer would have been, they can be. He had Timothy circumcised. But they don't need to be. And why? Because Jesus accomplished what circumcision merely signified. And God's promise to Abraham concerning Jesus was before and greater than the sign of circumcision. So Paul knew where the events logged in scripture landed in the storyline of God's plan, and that impacts how you apply those words. We need to be able to do that kind of work too. If we don't, we'll just grab Bible verses and use them to our peril. Sometimes we'll make fools of ourselves, or sometimes we can mislead people or be misled. Finally, Paul, we need to say, applies the finished work of Christ, not just to to circumcision, I would say to everything. And we need to learn how to do that too. Paul, you'll see in his letters, will apply the finished work of Christ to how we treat people of other races, of other classes. He wouldn't allow people to have privileged seats in church because of this very belief in the gospel. He taught how we should think about sex and our bodies, how we should think about work and leading other people, how we should view food and drink and celebrating and mourning. You'll see he never teaches a simple stripped down gospel. It's a huge deal. The gospel, though basic, has implications that reach out to everything. And elsewhere in the scripture, you get the idea that the gospel isn't just about human beings not going to hell. The gospel is about redeeming all of creation, including plant life, animal life, 
the whole of his world and creation and the cosmos, he wants to put back into order the way he created it to be, and that's the design and purpose of the gospel. It has massive, massive implications. And we, as Christians, must become masters of this, of understanding how to not twist the gospel to where it is no longer the gospel, but how to not truncate the gospel where we don't apply it to all things. And we want to work on that, even this year. This year, our vision is to be set apart, and what we mean by that is multifaceted. We know that God's people are set apart or made holy by the finished work of the gospel. But we also know that gospel-believing people need to stand out and not be sucked into other-than-gospel principles. And we know that specific churches in specific places have a unique calling, and they have unique needs that allow them to bring the gospel to different types of people with different backgrounds. And that's what we want to explore this year. How do we fit in that? How do we grow in that? How do we mature in that? And we hope that you all will commit to walk with us in that exploration. I'm going to pray, and uh, we're going to enter into our three different ways of worship. Um, We're going to take a time of confession after I pray. But, of course, after confession, we're we're going to sing together. These are opportunities to have the gospel sink in through gospel saturated songs. Um, We have giving in the back. I mean, look, as we look back over this past year, how did we accomplish all the things in the email? How did we continue to stay committed to this task? It's because you all gave and helped and supported us, and we would would ask you to continue uh, to do that. We we need that. Um, Normally, we would come forward and take of the Lord's Supper in a physical way, and though we're not going to do that to be safe, we are going to do that. Because we will acknowledge in our singing and in our prayers that there is one Lord and one God, and that we are united in him, which is what it means to come eat of one loaf and drink of one cup. And so think on those things until the day we can have bread and wine up here together again. So allow me to pray, and I'm going to leave about two minutes of silence for you to pray. And I would would encourage you, Ask God, what do you want me to press into this year? Confess anything that that may have been pricked in you as you heard these things this evening. And, And lastly, feel free to pray for God's guidance and help throughout this upcoming year. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. There's a, I was surprised at how much could be drawn out of just these seven verses. And I pray that as we enter into this year, into this book in which we see your apostle Paul teaching, admonishing, correcting, I pray that we would lovingly, boldly, with the leading of your spirit, of your spirit, admonish, lead, correct one another, that we would walk with each other, that we uh, pastors and elders would equip the saints, your people of this church, to do the work of ministry that our church would be known for doing the work of ministry as a whole collective group, and that we would do so in such a uniquely gospel-saturated way that it would be unmistakable. I want to specifically pray for 
Phil Netherton and his family, the loss of Phil's dad. I pray that you would comfort them and help them to navigate these difficult times. Many of us now know people who've gotten COVID, some even severely, and we pray, God, that you would have mercy on them, that you would bring healing, safety, that you would give us wisdom in how to navigate our world and our city in a way that we're, that we're safe and caring for our neighbor and friend and family. I pray for those who are jobless or struggling. I pray for those who are fearful or angry. And I especially pray for those who have no hope outside of the things of this world. I pray that we would shine a light, not in a way that's uncomfortable or disingenuous, but that's honest and loving, and that we would tell the truth about you and our relationship to you. God, I pray that we would move into the world humbly. And so as we come before you to confess, I pray that that would be a regular posture for us as Mission Church, that people would see us confessing our sins, humbling ourselves before you and before one another, and they would wonder where we get the power to be vulnerable in that kind of way. So teach us how to do it as we approach you now and guide us as we pray.